You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. There's only two. Go ahead. I know. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm JR. And yeah, there are. There are only two of us. Yeah. So the topic that we had for tonight was really a topic for four of us, mm. but as soon as there's only two of us, and yeah. the other two couldn't make it. Lee's gonna... climbing mountains in Wales. No, I think he's back. Is he? Yeah, he was at some concert or something tonight. Oh, right. Oh. Lazy bugger. Yeah. In fact, Lee has sent us an email about the last episode. Or, in fact, the two-parter, both parts. Right. So, I'll read that out. And uh, that's his resignation speech. <laughs> well, for the time being. He said he's resigning for the summer because he's too busy. I don't think he's... I don't think he's showing enough commitment, do you? I have no idea, but he doesn't listen to these. So, it doesn't matter what no, we say. No, so it doesn't matter what <laughs> we say about him. He won't hear it. Oh, but first, I've got one about World Enough and Time. From Nick Knoll, that I forgot to read out last time. Dear Blue Box Podcast, brilliant, your friend Nick. Oh, thanks. What did you think of the episode? Oh, yes, because of course, when he says, Dear Blue Box Podcast, brilliant, he's talking about us, isn't he? That's kind of what I assume. (laughs) Lee says about the pair of them. (laughs) I can't believe I've just said that. Go on. <clears throat> what a brilliant episode. Oh. Beautiful, bold, and well-balanced. Master killing Master twice was genius, but we kind of guessed this. Bill becoming a full-on Cyberman was superbly done, and Nardole became useful and not annoying. The Doctor was, as always, perfect. I believe I mentioned I would like the Puddle Girl to come back and whisk Bill away in a blaze of love after the first episode. Yeah, so that, that was satisfying. did call it. It did that, call the puddle, the puddle Girl. I think a lot of people Possibly. thought the Puddle Girl was going to come back. <clears throat> I thought that was why they played Love Will Never. Love Will Never. Love Will Tear Us Apart again. Oh, really? On, uh, the, during oh, the course of the pilot. Did they? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, uh, yeah, but that was all down in my uh, Billy Susan. Oh, okay. Right, right. <laughs> evidence. He says, <clears throat> the Bill Hartnell thing at the end was excellent too. The one Doctor adaptation, maybe. One thing, did I hear right that the Master couldn't remember changing from Sim to Missy? Will we get another Master or two before Missy? Anyway, a full 10 out of 10 for both episodes. Bloody excellent TV. Mm. You'd have uh, to stop calling it a Bill Hartnell thing. Because I haven't stopped calling it a Bill Hartnell. But it's thing. the first. I mean, it's either the first. I mean, it's the one thing. It's not is William Hartnell. It's William well, Hartnell, yeah, but he was playing like, William Hartnell in that adventure in yeah. time and space. Or space Which I read somebody somewhere somebody suggested that it had compromised that. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Mm. That would mean that that would only be possible if an adventure in time and space or space and time was somehow canon. To the series and then contradicted by the series itself, rather than I don't know, the other way around. Yeah. yeah, it's very no, strange. I don't think it's compromised it so much as it's reinforced it. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Well, it's like an audition now. Hmm. Yeah, that was a strange comment. Mm. Lee's comment about the master forgetting, or Missy forgetting, changing from the master. Hmm. I think he's got the wrong end of the stick with that one. But he's not listening to this podcast, and we talked about it last week, so yes, yeah, let's yeah. let that go. Okay, the subject for tonight, which we should all have chipped in on, but which we haven't, <clears throat> is the underdog stories. We were going to shine a little sunshine on yes. the underdog stories. So we've each chosen three or four stories that we would like to... Give a little bit the, of celebration. So my pro- my problem with underdog stories is there's so many underdog stories that have since been like reassessed, yeah, and now yeah. they're kind of 
now they've kind of raised and there's so many overdubs. So, well, that's true. It's... And so the ones I've chosen are ones that are kind of still not very well thought of. Yeah. No, I'm. So I've gone for the but ones the... sort of in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But... I haven't. Yeah, I've not chosen ones that I think are really badly thought of. No. But I've chosen ones that are as best as I can gather liked by fewer people than they're disliked. If you want to find out about stories that are badly regarded yeah. then the Hating to Love is still available. <laughs> and the follow-up book will be yeah. on the middling stories oh. so actually we're going over ground that's coming up in the follow-up book anyway Is that actually a follow-up book? About middling stories? There are going to be two follow-up books. Oh really? Yeah, one is about um, one is about stories that changed or set paradigms Oh, I'm, I'm involved in that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I remember. And at the same time, also, there's going to be another book about the middling stories. Okay. Okay. And sort of asking the question, why are these only regarded as middling? Right. Okay. Because I think potentially there's something in every story that... No, but when... There's the thing. When you sit down to write a story... You pour a little bit of your heart and soul into it, even yes. if even if you're doing a terrination yes. where you're just writing for the money or whatever. Yeah, you're yeah. still putting something of yourself into it. Well, there's always so there's always something interesting, and I know this because I'm writing about the demons as we speak. Mm-hmm. My book, my my desk is laden with books. It is. And Wizards: A History is the one that's sitting yes. at the top. And the the demons isn't isn't the most sort of nuanced or complex story, but because of its subject matter, you can go outside of the story and actually, you know, go really deep into the influences and the history and the <coughs> literature of the subject. And you've got a little bit of that with every single story that's ever been written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's all always, those stories come out of to. yeah, all those stories come out of people's heads, mm-hmm. and all that stuff is bubbling away in people's heads. Yeah. And actually, I was going to ask you to come up with the first choice. Okay. But seeing as you've brought up the demons, right, I'm going to give you my first choice. Okay which is the time monster. Right. Which is kind of a, well... Not quite a middling story. Then. Yeah, that's, that's the one... Yeah. That's... Pr- yeah, but actually the time monster is one of those stories where a lot of people say, oh, it's rubbish, it's dreadful, mm. it's awful. Yeah. But actually there's quite a few people who say, okay, it is rubbish, it's awful, but it's such bloody good fun. Yes. Yeah. And... Well, the question, I suppose, is... Because it is, in many ways, a sort of remake of The Demons. Mm. It's got a lot of the same elements. Right. Well, the question is, then, did they realise they were remaking The Demons? Did they realise they were throwing all the same elements at it? And because it's got so many daft moments in it, yeah, like the window cleaner falling in slow motion and, of course, Mm. Baby Benton... Yes. At the end, turning into um, naked Benton at the yes. end. Yeah. <clears throat> did were they say? Did, were they saying to themselves, right, let's do the demons again, but this time let's do it for fun? I d- I'm not sure if it's consciously a retread of the demons rather than. I think Barry Letts and uh, Roger Sloman, Robert Sloman. Yeah. Um, if you get that right, they have a certain set set sort of set of interests. Yeah, yeah. Including, I mean, you could tell there's a really weird fascination with Greece that Barry Letts has. And I think this feeds into the demons. So this kind of ancient mythology feeds into the demons. We've and got this the time war- thing about the time Buddhism, monster. but it seems yes. to mix it up with all sorts of other cultures as yeah, well. Yeah, which is exactly what happens in the in, yeah, the, yeah. in the demons as I'm, as I'm writing about it, because this is the history of... Of witchcraft, as it was understood in the 1970s, that it is kind of a melange of different cultures, African mythology, Eastern European mythology, all sort of combined together. But something about ancient Greece and Greek mythology let's, seems to return to, because he did the same thing in uh, Ghosts of Endspace as well. Oh, right, yes, of course it's, he did, yeah. Like that. Which, which it was part... either Ghost of Endspace or Paradise, Paradise of Death. Yeah, I th- it might have been Paradise of Death, given the name. It's possible. I, can't I think there's which. a weird, a weird thing where the brigadier goes and visits relatives in somewhere, somewhere in that area. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it felt really odd at the time because you don't think of 
of you Greece, don't associate that Greece with Doctor been, Who. But I think this is a Barry Letts thing, and I think yeah. in these stories, this is something that, that Barry Letts brought in. The difference with the demons is it's a very British, it's looking at the British end of the mythology, whereas um, the time monster's looking at the European end of the mythology, I think. But it's all about this kind of... It's all about... It's one of those ones where Doctor Who, which it is wont to do from time to time, says, right, really, we're sort of a fantasy programme, but we pretend to be a science programme. Yeah. And sometimes we'll actually try and be a science programme. So let's take something that's got nothing to do with science, really, like Greek mythology, like witchcraft, and let's either find the science in it or put the science in it yes so you've got this weird story about this creature the chronovore which is a bit like the demon in the demons Mm -hmm. and how it has affected the mythology yes which is but there's there's always a sort of always a constant one-upmanship of the science and mythology Mm. so in in both the demons and the time monster the science turns out to be so so high science yeah, it's indistinguishable it like from from yeah. magic and mythology, which kind of, which kind of works with Letts's belief. I mean, Letts was a kind of a he was a Buddhist, but he was also a very left wing, kind of esoteric thinker. I well, think. then Buddhism is the religion that's less about gods and more about man, isn't it? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. But it's also it's also sort of I think through Letts, it's also spoken through the filter of the New Age. Mm. So it's there's a lot of sort of hippieish 1960s concepts with Leds. Well, that's which the involves, thing. You know, 60s concepts make their way into the wider culture. You know, a few years later. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's called the long 60s, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, all that happens with everything. Mm. But yeah, the, you've got all these books like. Um, God, what's the one about the aliens actually forming Fond- human Fondanken, Fondanken. Fondanken. Chariots of the gods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Which yeah. is what, 66 or something? Uh, it's, it's something like that. I should yeah. know because I'm, I've got it. <laughs> it's probably there in that pile. It's, it's down there somewhere, I think. But yes, yeah. So what I like about the Time Monster, apart from the fact that it is so utterly bonkers from start to finish that mm. you kind of sit there watching it with your eyes peeled wide not quite believing what you're looking at. But they've also thrown some real Doctor Who type concepts in there. Mm. Like the master fetches people out of the past. Yeah. To yeah, threaten the soldiers in there. That's a great yeah. sort of Doctor Who concept. It's like the awakening. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But it's not as good. Oh, <laughs> well, no, I. No, it's not as well executed. But I think it's better conceived in the time it's, monster. It's better conceived, but it's not. I think I think it felt a bit like um, uh, it ba- feels a baker. It felt like a Baker and Martin story. Yeah, it did. Where it's just except one not tamed by Terence Terence Dix. So it was a lot <laughs> of really cool concepts and a few not so cool concepts, kind of like mashed together. I think. Yeah. Which yeah. probably worked better as an episodic, like one episode. Oh yeah, yeah. Watching it. Watching back to it, back. Yeah, I think yeah. it's one of those stories where it becomes a little bit wearing. That you're just, you know, trying to focus on one thing, you're thinking it's cool, and then they flip to the next thing. And then it's got the two scientists. Yes. Who are utterly, utterly bizarre. Yeah, I can't I can't work out if they're if it, they're badly acted or really well acted, but they're yeah. just slightly irritating people. I think he's certainly an irritating person. But they're so nineteen seventies sitcom. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what they're doing there. And I don't know, there's just something about them that I Which, could sit and watch all day. It reminds me of the similar, there's a similar set of people in Image of the Fendal. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So that kind of group of contemporary scientists together, kind of bantering. Yeah, yeah. But the writers haven't quite got the bantering right. In fact, it happened in... Well, the... in Image of the Fendal, they're not doing it as sitcom. Yeah. They're just doing it as drama. In fact, in the recent series as well, there was, there was that in the pyramid at the end of the... What's his name? There were yeah, scientists yeah, yeah. bantering, and at the, at the time it felt fine. But I'd imagine in about twenty, thirty years' time, it'll be it was really, sort of yeah. That's how you date things, I think. Yeah, and then um, of course you've got the two episodes in Atlantis at the end. Yeah, those those for me are the weaker. They are, parts. but oh, yes. Are they shot with a Vaseline on Vaseline on the lens? They're really no, sort of wispy. bizarre. There's some really, really strange stuff going on there. But... Who was the director? It's a test. I think it's Paul Bernard. 
I had George, well, is he a designer? George Spenton. No, he didn't direct until the later 1970s. Okay, okay. George Spenton Foster. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he directed until about the key to time. Okay, okay. So Paul Bernard. But yes, those odd decisions. He did, if I'm remembering right, same director as Frontier in Space. Okay, which I'm also not a fan of. But sorry, Tom. But what I was going to say was, apart from some of the costumes which they've put in and some slightly odd casting, but actually the cast in those last two episodes are really giving it their all. Mm. Yes. And actually, I think apart from maybe a couple of minor parts, throughout the entire six episodes, I don't think there's anybody who's not giving enough charisma in their performance that even if you think, like with the two scientists, yes, there's something absolutely dreadful going on there. Yeah, but that you can't watch it. Yes, it's not got anybody in it like um, what's it called? Cotton in the mutants. Yeah, or the the woman in Planet of the Planet of the Spiders. Yes. So they oh, go, they go, yeah. they have a, like Jenny an Laird. Atlantis moment, and then suddenly they're all speaking in a ridiculously theatrical manner. Well, you've got um, Susan Penhallegan in a really mm. small part, which yeah. kind of shows you. Well, it just kind of, that's kind of an example of the quality that you've mm. actually got in this story. Yeah. And somehow, instead of making, you know, gold out of this mm. sort of mixture of a half-decent script. Yes. And decent actors and certainly a relatively well-regarded director. Yeah. Instead, they're turning it all into mud. Yes. Yeah. But but I think supremely watchable mud. Yes. And Roger Delgado is strange. Oh, he's yeah. good, but he's strange. It's at that point where he stops being a villain, almost. So he actually shows a degree of sort of affection towards the two scientists, albeit yeah, kind yeah, of like yeah. their pets. But but he sort of softens. Through but this is bit. where he stopped being a regular, and now he's a recurring. Yeah. So when he was doing season eight, mm. he's kind of... You get into a groove with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but then when you become recurring as opposed to regular, you fall out of the groove and you yeah. have to find the groove. Yeah. So I guess when he comes back and does the Sea Devils, and then when he comes back and does the Time Monster, and then when he comes back and does Frontier in Space, mm. you're getting three different performances yeah. from him that yeah. aren't the performance he was given in no. Season 8. Yeah. So, yeah. And this one, given that it's this story, is probably the one that's furthest from. Yes what you would expect. Anyway, I like it. Okay. I enjoy it. Yes. I think it's one of... I would suggest that the best way to watch The Time Monster is in company with somebody who doesn't like Doctor Who. Right. Yes. Because I did that once and they absolutely loved it. They had no, a whale of a time. Okay. And I've heard that from other people too. So. Yes. Wow. So, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think if you like Doctor Who, you like Doctor Who to be good and you're yes. a bit scared when it's not good. Okay. Yes. But I think if you don't like Doctor Who, you'll laugh at the funny bits and the time monster's pretty much chock full of them. It is. Yes. Intentionally yeah. or not. Yeah. Absolutely. Go on then, Matt. What is your well, first I think my, so my first one will be Keeper of Traken. Oh, really? Yeah. Which is a middling story, which is sort of liked by some, but found boring by others. I tell you what. When I first saw that, when it was first broadcast, when I would have been around about what, 11 or 12, something mm. like that, I guess, that last episode was the most exciting thing. Yes. I'm, well, I saw it. I remember it. Do you? Being on, yeah. Yeah. And, and I must have been about four. Yeah. Or five. And I was terrified by the Yeah. Oh, well, they Really, go. really, it sort of, it kind of like, yeah, it screwed me up good and proper. Well, this, yes, the Melka in that mm. is... See, when I, I was old enough to say, oh, my God, that is a really poor sort of prop for a statue. Yes. Yeah. So I was obsessing about how poor the prop for the statue yeah. was. Yeah. And it's only when you realise that it's the master who's inside it yes. that yeah. it starts to get interesting. And it's quite a malevolent design as well. It's a really well designed. It's like um, the robots in Robots of Death. It's got that kind of quite unique look to it. Well, it's very... Yeah, they're very Art Deco, and this yes. isn't a million miles away. No, no. But the reason, I mean, I, I find it quite interesting because I've got a theory that 
the Doctor Who and television, early television as as well, is sort of divided into two different influences. You've got the theatrical influence and you've got the cinematic influence. So and this and so the theatrical inf- uh, the cinematic influence informs things like play for the day and the Wednesday play, and the theatrical influence informs generally things like sitcoms. Well, and Doctor Who has. Has, has swings between the two poles, I think, throughout, well, its, a, throughout its time. Well, throughout the classic series. Yeah. yeah. I think and, and the new series as well, uh, I think. Not so much. That, as, I think as my been, argument will continue. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was only going to say, yeah. there's a really interesting point to be made there about okay. fandom in general. Yeah. In that television in general in the 50s and 60s was more theatrically influenced. Yes. Whereas yeah. television in general in the noughties and teens yes. is more cinematically it's, influenced. It's drawing more on cinema now. So, But I think there's always been this sort of tension, and it's not just to do with studio-bound stories and location stories. It's about it's partly talkiness. That, but it's also yeah, it about were. the dialogue and also the performances. And I think, but also if you look back over the classic, a lot of the stories that are seen as stone-cold classics actually are the theatrical ones. So I'd say that Pyramids of Mars is a theatrical story. Really? Because it takes place in... Well, the main drive of the story takes place in, like, three, four rooms. And there's a lot of dialogue. Because the the imagery that you really remember is the mummies walking around in the grounds of the house. There's elements of that. Or Genesis of Daleks, I'd say, is also theatrical. It it gets that way after the first episode. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a there's a kind of a degree of theatricality, and if you look at the new series, it's all about the proscenium arch. If right? you look at the new series, that's often what fans are want are talking about when they're talking about we want old school stories. I mean, think about the base under siege. What's the base under siege other than an opportunity to have a theatrical story? So, Mummy on the Orient Express is basically in one uh, set. Yeah, and it's a theatrical. It's a it's a it's theatrical active. style story. With a castle, I mean, it's basically an Agatha Christie play. Yeah. So, the Keeper of Trakan, I think, happens at that point in the series where, just at the end of this this kind of run of theatrical stories, I think Robert Holmes was very good at the theatrical, and I think Keeper of Trakan was was probably the high point of the well, theatrical it, story. Well, it happens when JNT comes in and tries to make it more cinematic. Yeah, yeah. And Saywood Saywood as well was very... Well, Saywood, yeah, of course, comes in afterwards. But sort of JNT and Christopher H. Bidmead had Mm. this... uh, I don't think it was their sort of conscious choice. No. But but it had been disappearing up its own backside. Yeah. But that was the humour. But what subconsciously probably... They were looking at was a lot of stories set in a lot of corridor and yes, spaceship yeah. sets where a lot of people are basically just telling jokes with each other mm. and what they wanted to do was something different so you've got the new title sequence yeah it's a big signifier that they want to do something more modern mm-hmm. and more flashy and more yeah. cinematically influenced yeah. yeah and then things like in megloss you've got the new scene sync yeah special effects the warriors gate yeah, famously. Oh, I mean, that was a studio-bound story, but made to with like, cinematic like techniques. Like yeah. So you've got um, JNT possibly throwing the switch a bit in that direction. And the interesting thing about The Keeper of Traken is, yes, it's very, very theatrical. Because Johnny Byrne, of course. So that's that's my point. It. So Johnny, yeah. Johnny Byrne, as you say, have said before, because he's a poet. Yeah, but I think but also writes Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. Yeah, yeah. So but I think his, his poetry is less. So there's always been an affinity between poetry and the theatre. I mean, that's where poetry comes from. That's where theatre comes from. It's originally poetry was theatre, theatre yeah, yeah, poetry, yeah. and so having a having an ex poet writing that sort of story. And if you look at Warriors of the Deep, which is much less successful than Keeper of Trakin, that would potentially be. A Johnny Byrne story, it, it had potential to be a really good story if it was done more theatrically. Yeah. But it was but done it's... cinematically as an action adventure, studio it's, bound. Yeah. It's and trying it, to be. It didn't work. It's trying to be Resurrection of the Daleks. Yes. But in the spaces and the settings yeah. of Keeper of Trakin. Yes. But imagine, imagine if it was more claustrophobic, more sort of. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be a really good story. Yeah, that was uh, not quite the wrong writer for the script or yes, the wrong script yeah, for the yeah. writer. So Keeper of Trakin, um The reason yeah. Keeper of Trakin is successful is because 
throughout seasons 15, 16 and 17, they're doing this thing where they've taken it to a sort of nadir. Yeah. Although, you know, we've often said the ideas and the scripts are great and sometimes the scripts are great. Yeah. But the way the production has gone is making an ass out of them, really. Yeah. So Keeper of Trakan actually is the first time you've had since maybe Horror of Fang Rock where you've actually done that thing and done it right. Yeah, yeah. And so you that, won't get it again until maybe Kinder, which is the kind of the next the next sort of embracing of the four stories along, but I take your point. Yeah, yeah. Is that four stories? Blimey. Yeah. So it's not but but it's it happens rarely after after I mean Well, especially after Saywood comes in. You're then looking at maybe ghost light. Well, when Saywood comes in, he's trying yeah. to make everything like the professionals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Made on film series. Yes, yeah. yeah. And exactly. of course, that's not going to work with the way Doctor Who's made. But that's an no. entirely different. Yes. So that's that was my story. Okay. Shall I do a new series one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh no! I would, actually, before we move on, I was just going to make a point. And there's a divide in Doctor Who fandom, sort of between the old school and the new school, mm-hmm. and the old school fans. And I'm generalising hugely here. Yes. But there tends to be an old school fandom that prefers old style television which is more theatrical yes and there tends to be a new newer school of fandom which tends to prefer more cinematic television yeah and so totally. and so you've kind of got a big trade-off that each sort of side of that divide has to yeah. make in order to like all of doctor who and of course so that's where you get the friction and you can see that now with with stephen moffat so there are there are fans that really dislike like the intricate flashbacks, which would be a cinematic technique, yeah, not yeah, a theatrical yeah. technique, or the the location jumping or the yeah, universe yeah. hopping, and they want something like Mummy on the Orient Express, yes, or something like Midnight or something enclosed, and yeah. there are fans that you know vice versa, and which is why probably World Enough and Time was a big success because yes. largely that was Bill downstairs with yeah, yeah. Jethro, and there's nothing, and there's nothing. The, the, the key with Doctor Who is effectively to do The Deadly Assassin, which is cinematic and theatrical, moving between the two. I mean, that's that's the kind of... It's when you get mm. to, to John Nathan Turner's later series that you start getting the theatrical stories, the the sort of the um, Happiness Patrol, Ghostlight, and then the cinematic with, stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. because of Fenric and yes. Battlefield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, my next choice which is kind of on a similar subject to that, is The Wedding of River Song. Okay. Which is the least loved of the Moffat finales, possibly the least loved of all the new series finales. Yeah. And I'm not really sure why, Mm. because I think it does... See, I think people... At the time The Wedding of River Song came along... I think people had got so used to Moffat being clever in yeah. inverted commas hmm. that they were expecting something clever. Yeah. And they'd already started moaning about Moffat being too clever for his own good. Yeah. So when he actually provided something simple, hmm. they kind of went, well, that's not what I was expecting. Yeah. Instead of, oh, you've actually given us what we wanted. Right. Because I think... And although it's obviously cinematic rather than uh, yeah, theatrical, yeah. actually the 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 way the wedding of River Song resolves itself, I think is one of the more straightforward resolutions. Is this the test yeah, yeah. It's one of the more straightforward resolutions that the new series has provided, mm. and one that you have to jump through the least number of hoops to accept. Right. It's not a big set red reset button. No. Other than that, it's been set up to be a time paradox, right? Well, he sort of sets up a, a series of red herrings through the whole series. Yeah. It could be one of the blobby guys. Yeah, it yeah. could be a time paradox. Or you kind of... I mean, I felt a little bit like this series with the, the Puddle Girl that that I'd kind of forgotten about the Tesselector by the time the Tesselector came along. So... The red herrings almost <laughs> eclipsed the Tesselector, which kind of worked in terms of a surprise. Well, that's kind of how of... it's supposed to be, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I do. I think there. I think there's probably a better balance to be had between the different the different possibilities before it hits you. 
So otherwise you've just got the real, the real possibility sort of hiding behind the red herring all the way. But, you know, it, well, it was it, just it a reveal out. in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, and with with this series, I think that's the problem with the stories beforehand, not with the story where the yeah, it happens. happens. Yeah. yeah. But the other things about Wedding River Song, the whole first section where it's all of time happening at once, mm-hmm. that's just one of those ideas that hits a really sweet spot with me. Yes. So yeah. I don't. I absolutely adore that. Yeah. And then you get the scene about the brigadier. Mm-hmm. And then you get everybody knuckling down. Yes. And I just think it's really lightly done, mm. but really effectively done. Yes. Yeah. And I really don't know where the sort of opprobrium for that story comes from. It's like everybody hates it. Or, no, not everybody hates it, because I know there are other people who love it like I do. Yeah. But it doesn't really sit in the middle for anybody. You either really like it or you really don't like it. But it's there's a, there's a tendency, if you're not... If you're not watching it in the right frame of mind, it hits you with an idea. It hits you with an idea and then moves on and then hits you with another idea. Yeah, yeah. So Moffat tends to tends to burn through ideas at a huge rate, which is you know brilliant, brilliant, which is brilliant and exciting and you know full of exciting images. But you sort of sometimes want to think, well, can't you make a whole story out of that? Another whole story. So in the wedding of River Song, you've probably got enough material there for an entire season of Doctor Who. Yeah, Albeit maybe it's a but... simpler season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't mind that. No, no, no. It's, I mean, it's another way of doing it. it, it can... yeah. Plus, the wedding of River Song came off the back of Night Terrors and mm. the God Complex and the Girl Who Waited and um, Closing Time, which all did a simple idea in yeah. a simple fashion. Mm-hmm. So to have an episode like that at either end of that section, because you had Let's Kill Hitler at the start yeah. and The Wedding of River Song at the end, I thought those two episodes were fantastic and yeah. stood out. Yeah. And I thought they earned their place in that series mm. because the stories in between were simple. So you had a nice balance between the simple stories and the yes. complicated ones. Mm-hmm. And the one other point that I wanted to make about The Wedding of River Song is, well... The quote is, Moffat lies. Yes. Right. At the start of the series, Moffat says to Doctor Who magazine or somewhere, or I think it's promoted as a a feature on the BBC website or something, Moffat says one of the main characters will die in this first episode. Will die. Yes. And so the whole Moffat lies thing has become... So Moffat lied when he said one of those characters would die. Mm. And subsequent to that, in Doctor Who magazine, somebody said, so how come if it's the Doctor and the Tesselector and he doesn't actually die, how come we see the regeneration energy? And Moffat's answer is something along the lines of, hey, you know, with the kind of special effects we've got, we can fake regeneration energy. So Mm. I'm sure with the technology the Doctor's got, he can manage it too. But the way he phrases it, he doesn't actually say that's what the Doctor's doing. Yes. And if you remember what the catchphrase for the series was, it was time can be rewritten. Mm. So to my mind, it's the most obvious thing in the world that in the first episode, the Doctor does die. Mm. And then they go back and change it so that he doesn't. Right. That just seems to me really obvious. Mm-hmm. So when you see it in The Impossible Astronaut, that's not the Tesselector, that is yes. the Doctor. Right. But then they, through time paradox, which yes. is how these things work, go back and substitute it. Mm-hmm. I don't know, does that... Yeah, yeah. That that just seems really obvious to me. Yeah. Like... And I think that's one of the complaints about the story, is not the story itself, but the mm. fact that Moffat said somebody will die in this episode, yes. and because he's alive again by the end of the series, mm. you know, Moffat yes. was lying. But he wasn't lying. No. He was telling the absolute truth, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, the way I read that story. Fair enough. Right. Do you want to do a new series choice? Uh, okay. So my, my new series choice is Utopia, um, which is quite highly... I mean, it's not... It's highly regarded, but it's... But only for a certain fraction of it. Uh, yeah, so it's highly regarded as the first episode of an unofficial trilogy. But I think I think it's underrated as a story of itself. 
I mean, obviously, the, the climax, the conclusion, is an integral part of the story. The last 20 minutes is kind of feel separate from the rest. Yes. And people tend to rate the last 20 minutes and ignore the first yeah. 25. But the first 25 are essential to build up to that last 20 minutes. It does still operate. I mean, it is. It is a story that builds up towards that essential climax. But that's what, I mean, what else is a story other than designed to build up? And you didn't, you won't get that last 20 minutes unless you firmly establish the character. Yeah, yeah. You know, played by um, Derek Jacobi. Yeah, and it's a story with Derek Jacobi in it all the way through. And he's in it a lot. So it's just, and it's nicely, plus it's nicely set. So it's got an exciting setting and... Captain Jack is quite good. It's probably one of the last times Captain Jack is good. (laughs) But plus, the first 25 minutes of that story are integral to the Toclophane's arrival at the end of The Sound of Drums. Yes, yeah. So, again, you couldn't have the Toclophane in The Sound of Drums and Last of the Time Lords Hmm. without that first 25 minutes of Utopia. So so it is an integral part of the whole three parts, but also it's... On even on its own, that idea of humanity trying to escape from a shrinking universe—that's that's, that's an quite, interesting that's enough quite, idea. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a worthy idea. I mean, it's sort of post-apocalyptic and Mad Maxy, and it's yeah. it's well executed. I just, you know, I liked it. I remember being excited by it. I wish I hadn't have been spoiled by the uh, the, the the Derek Jacobi twist, but well, really, you knew that. Yeah, I think so. I think I was spoiled by it. I think it was... I think I read somewhere that Derek Jacobi played the master in hiding. Oh, right. So that that sort of, you know... I don't think that was... I didn't join the internet till the year after that. Oh, really? So I wouldn't have been spoiled by being online. Okay. So the best I knew was that there was a rumour that he was playing the master. Right, okay. And actually, I don't mind that. If there's going to be a twist, Hmm. I don't mind it being rumoured. Because no. then the tension is, is the rumour true? Yes. So you sit there and there's a tension between, is it going to turn out to be the thing that I've heard it's going to be? Yeah. Or is what I've heard going to turn out to be wrong? And that's where the tension is. If you know yes. what the twist I is. I think in general, in general, yeah, yeah, there's a difference between rumour and, and confirmed fact. So the, the, the presence of, of David Bradley in the Christmas special was sort of spoiled for me by somebody commenting on a photograph on Facebook, which yeah. showed, which showed a long distance shot from David the film of the Christmas in. special. Yeah. 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 Which, and I'd, I'd suspected he was going to be in it because that was the rumor, but that became pretty certain. So. Well, and, um, going back to series six, River Song turning out to be Amy's daughter. There were yeah. a lot of rumors about that, mm. but I don't think anybody had confirmed it. Because I don't think, because that's a script thing. That's the yes. thing that's in the script rather yeah. than something you can have a photograph of, right? Mm. Yeah. So other than somebody showing up with a script, mm. yeah. it doesn't matter how many people say, yeah, I believe that's true. Yeah. None of them can actually say, yes, it's definitively true yeah. until yeah. they've seen the episode. Having said that, and this goes against a bit against what I just said about being spoiled for Utopia, I, well, think, you... I think there's a sort of a fetishization of, of surprises or twists in actually in in film and television in general these days everybody's really sort of protective about what's going to happen and that means that that television seems to be built on twists or mm. cliffhangers or suspense well, and particularly doctor who under stephen moffat yeah that's his yeah. mo isn't it but at the same time there's a pleasure in watching in knowing what the end's going to be and watching How the movement towards the end mm-hmm. and I, you don't have to well, so that's, I'm not that's why I'm never that's part really, of why we enjoy going back and rewatching yeah, things but I'm not I don't go to lee levels to to avoid spoilers no. or or revelations because I'm quite happy watching things and I can sort of pretend that I didn't know them and I'm still excited by watching them so I was excited last week or last saturday by knowing that David Bradley might turn up in it, and I was watching it, you know, assuming that somewhere. watching the progression yeah, yeah. towards whatever was going to happen at the end, and even with the master being Mister Razor, hmm. do you know what I found? And this is, you know, from a sample of maybe fifty people that I've heard say 
at what point they realised it was John Sim. Yeah. And I'd say of probably around 50 people that I've either heard on podcasts or seen mm. on social media saying at what point they realised, I would say that more than half of them, and these being all Doctor Who fans yeah. who all knew that John Sim was going to be in that episode, right. I'd say that well over half of them didn't twig it until the scene where he's actually talking to Missy. And I'd say that of the remaining... Yeah, and I'd say that of the remaining somewhere between 20 and 25, maybe, most of those didn't twig it straight away either. There might might be a... So, particularly, this might be a country thing, because we're... I'm very... Well, I'm certainly very familiar with John Sim and (laughs) his sort of face and his acting style from... You know, numerous things. I mean, state, and also, state of play, I've watched about four or five times. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think the fact that the four of us watched it together, probably if any of us weren't going to twig it straight away, when he turned up on the screen and I went, oh. Yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. didn't help. No, well, no, also. Well, I did the same thing. But it's, did you? Oh, yeah, you were sitting behind me. I look, it's John Sim in disguise. Yeah, yeah. And then you just move on. Yeah. I mean, it's a shame. It's kind of, I'd be interested to see what it would be like to not know that and to, to see the moment the mask come out. To but have there's... got to that scene with Missy, because cause when um, in Utopia, mm. the point where the Doctor sees the fob watch, yes, yeah, the hairs go up on the back yeah, of your neck. Yeah. Even if you're prepared for the Master to be in it, you're not sure, A, how he's going to be. Yeah, I think I didn't know. I didn't realise that it would be... The a same. chameleon art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I think I was excited by that one. So I found yeah. I still found the so whole. At the moment thing. he yeah. finds the fob watch, the yes. hairs go up on the back of your neck. Yeah. I yeah. can imagine having the same reaction to that conversation between the the master yes. and Missy if you yeah. hadn't realised who Mister yeah. Razor was, and I was very disappointed I didn't get that. Yeah. And in Utopia, it's sold by David Tennant as well. There's definitely, yes, there's definitely it's well performed because he shows this kind of dread and excitement at the same time and this kind of manic, which David Tennant does a lot, but this kind of manic sort of, yeah, over-excitement at what might happen. And you get, um, presumably, because we don't know because we saw it straight away, presumably you'd have had something of that with Missy's reaction to the things that, Mm. Mr. Razor's saying to her yeah, as she yeah. suddenly starts to twig who it yeah. is. Done in a completely different way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But probably equally as well. Except, of course, we didn't get that because we watched it together. The yes. fools that we are. Yeah. We should have watched that story separately. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, my turn to choose another yes. one. Right, I've got a choice of two here. And I'm not going to do both of them because I said we'd keep this short tonight. So I'm going to go with Paradise Towers. Okay, yes. Um, going back to the theatrical thing. Yeah. I think um, you said about the when you get to McCoy, it splits into the theatrical ones and mm. the cinematic ones, and this yes. is very much a theatrical one. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about this before on this podcast a few times, but this is a theatrical one that's very arch. Yes. And I don't mind that. At all, because all I ask for a story is that it be consistent within its own universe for the four episodes that it exists. Mm. And if the next story along resets the tone, Mm. as long as it doesn't completely overwrite the continuity or whatever, if it resets the tone in the next story, Mm. that's fine with me. Yeah. Because it's only the story itself that I want to be self-contained. Yeah, Yeah. and that's Doctor Who. Yeah, that's 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 what what it does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and Paradise Towers... Everybody, every line of dialogue, they're all on the same page. Mm. They're all, until Richard Briers goes off the deep end at the end. Yeah. But I think when Richard Briers goes off the deep end at the end, because there's been this archness throughout that's in the characters, that's in the actors, that's in the dialogue, Yes. I think it's verging on acceptability. Yeah. Because where else was that character going to go at that point? Yeah. I mean, it's not a story steeped in realism. No, absolutely. So, so to, to perform it unrealistically. Yeah. It's kind of, I think Bryce probably takes it one step further than is comfortable. Yes. But I think there are things in it that are directed one step further than is comfortable. All the way through. All the way through. And 
yeah, that doesn't detract, I think, from a really intelligent script and a really, you know, good central concept. And a brilliantly performed script as well. Yeah. Paradise Towers reminds me a bit of Kinder that we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. in that there's an archness in the performances. Yeah. But because everybody is given it 100% mm. um, belief. Yes. They're getting away with it. And I think it's also become a kind of a myth, Paradise Towers, because so rarely people actually go back and rewatch it or look mm. at it. They just name check it as a really bad story. Yeah, which is but ridiculous. If you think about what Paradise Towers is and then try and imagine anything else being on television now, then, or before or since, being anything like Paradise Towers, just think about how unusual Paradise Towers is. Well, it's that or, or, and I go on about it, but greater, um, but Delta and the Bannerman as well. Try and yeah, imagine yeah, yeah. anything being like Delta and the Bannerman. Well, Paradise Towers is to the McCoy era what Gridlock is to the RTD era, really. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. very similar to me. Hmm. And there's something else I was going to bring up about it, and now it's gone out of my head. So, oh, but, but it's got the, like, the Happiness Patrol. I was mm. talking about Kinder, wasn't I? Yeah. And about how the performances mm. all hit the level. But they. But the thing I like about Paradise, there are a couple of very minor performances yes. that don't quite do it amongst the Kangs, but the main Kangs are brilliant. Mm. But the thing that I really like about Paradise Towers, mm. as opposed to, and actually I prefer The Happiness Patrol because I think it's slightly better done. Yeah. But the thing that Paradise Towers does better than that, and possibly does also better than Kinder, mm is that it has this archness with all the characters, but all the characters, Pecs, the caretakers, the Rezies, the Kangs, each of them has their own distinct archness from all of the others and their own distinct dialogue from all of the others. Mm. So it's like the author of that and the director of that Mm. have actually built four different worlds that coexist with one another Mm. without any one of them damaging any of the others or seeming out of place. So it all, to my mind, it looks cheap. Yes. But it doesn't look any cheaper than, I don't know, the brain of Morbius. Yeah, yeah. So it looks a bit cheap. I mean, there's there's really a trilogy of stories. There's um, Paradise Towers, The Happiness Patrol and Ghostlight which are all considered what J&T would call well, oddball stories. But actually, they're, they're, but, the, but those three stories, they are well, they're the theatrical ones. ones. Yeah, yeah. They're indoors. And they kind of have the same well, the same theatrical performances in them as well. The, the greatest show was supposed to be, but for an accident of fate. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, but, they have, but they have that kind of, that kind of um, theatricality about them. Yeah. By, by which the performances... And the script match perfectly, so the actors know exactly what they're performing. I think for me, Ghostlight is is the apogee of the the trilogy. It's the it's the best what people one. have been yeah, it's what mm. people have been moving towards yeah, yeah, through yeah. the three. And but that's, Paradise Towers is the most primitive of them yes, because it's yeah, the first attempt yeah. to do it. But it is, uh, I think it is an attempt to do different things in each season, things that aren't the Curse of Fenric or Remembrance yeah, of the yeah. Daleks. And actually, those are my favourite stories of the McCoy years, Paradise Towers, mm. Happiness Patrol and Ghostlight. Yeah. So, you know, I definitely fall on that side of the fence. Mm-hmm. So that was an easy choice. The other one I was going to make was the Android Invasion. But... Oh, yes. And what's your last classic series um, my last, My last classic series choice is Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Oh, well. Which is... Which is... And I can't... On my, before you go yeah. any further, yeah. on my preference revealer, Yes. Invasion of the Dinosaurs out of 280 stories came in the top 20. Right, yes. Which I thought, I was absolutely flabbergasted. Well, yeah, that. last time I watched it, I I came to the end of it thinking, well, that's I think that's my favourite John Pertwee story. Yeah. And I think, I still suspect it might be. And I don't know, it was difficult choosing it because I can't tell where it is in fandom anymore. I can't tell if it's if it's highly regarded or so that's why I assume it's a sort of a middling story because there are some people that can't get over the special the special effects yeah, no. which are understood and also yeah, it suffers also. slightly from that thing that Frontier in Space suffers from as well mm. in Frontier in Space it's getting locked up Yes. In Invasion of the Dinosaurs, it's people revealing to themselves to be double agents. Yes. It's almost like yeah. Malcolm Holt can't stop himself. Yes, but it's still 
in each, logic. Each cliffhanger still reveals something new and still drives it forward. So there's still, I mean, the cliffhangers have a similar form. So there's uh, quite a few cliffhangers where it's a dinosaur appearing and menacing people. But there's also a sort of a parallel thing with each one with double agents. So happening in tandem with one another, that's kind of... And it's got the great bit with Sarah Jane Smith on the spaceship that actually Mm -hmm. you almost felt World Enough and Time was referencing. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, oh, they did it there, you know, as a conceit within the episode, Mm. a conceit within the story to... um, to, so that Sarah Jane Smith's thing would be to reveal what the ultimate plot was. Yes, yeah. But it's almost like they said, well, could we actually do that for real? Yeah. And so with Bill downstairs, travelling yeah. much faster than the Doctor, yes, it's like they've done that for real. Yeah. Which yeah. shows how potent the idea is. Yeah, yeah. And also it's got a very rare moment of a of a betrayal. A, 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 yeah, the yeah. twist of Mike Yates is... A really brave thing to do. I mean, and it's and it's shown a de- as a development of things. So it's part of this quite rare story arc for Mike Yates that starts with the Green Death and ends with Planet of the Spiders. But this is his this is his fall, which is completely unexpected. I mean, it really is. It really is a shock. I think. Yeah, yeah. And it's praise, we forget that. And people perform uh, the the way Pertwee reacts to it, the way the Brigadier reacts to it. They are, you know. And Richard Franklin is seen, certainly in some quarters, as a bit of a joke these days. But he sells it. Yeah, yeah, he works. He, yeah. Do, he does He does more in those three stories than you really probably get from, like, the Brigadier. Yes. For yeah, example. Yeah. I mean, the Brigadier actor. plays that, you know, Nicholas Courtney plays that part. But yes. the Brigadier never really properly develops. No. It's very rare in the classic series that any of the characters develop. No. And with the Brigadier, this is possibly one of the last times. I mean, I really like him in Terror of the Zygons, but he's, as people have he's pointed out, he becomes more and more buffoonish as his, his time progresses. And more and more irrelevant as yeah. well, to but, be honest. But in this one, he sort of he sort of saves it, saves it slightly, I think. He's well, this is, this is probably the last unit story where unit actually feel integral. Yeah. Because in Robot, it's not about unit. Unit just happened to be there. It's about a giant robot. Yes. Yeah. Whereas Invasion of the Dinosaurs is about what unit does mm. when yeah. there's basically it's a disaster movie mm. where unit are clearing up the yeah cleaning yeah. up the pieces sort yes. of thing. Yeah. And of course, Invasion of the Dinosaurs got that great first episode, which mm. is my absolute all-time favourite first episode. Right. Deserted London. I've always had yeah. a thing for deserted cities, and yeah. this one does it just that little bit better than Dalek Invasion of Earth does. Yeah. And yeah. of course, Web of Fear slightly does it, but it's all underground, so... Which you have to... I mean, it's like Survivors. The, the, there's a reason why they hightail it into the countryside as, quick, as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But A, not to show, like, decaying bodies in the street. But when they do go back to, to London in whatever Series it is, two. Lights of London, yeah, then... They sort of have bits of that, but also they get down to the Mostly sewers as quickly as, po- yeah. as, pos- as quickly as possible, as in Web of Fear. So, yeah. but here, it works really well. They they manage to I, they film it quite early in the morning, and when well, they actually manage to keep that up across six episodes, yeah, obviously yeah. most of it's indoors after that. But episode mm. five's got quite a lot um, back on the streets, mm-hmm. and again they're filming very. People forget that. People look at the first episode of um, Invasion of the Dinosaurs and think that's about it for seeing the no. deserted London. Yeah. But there's like 15 minutes or something mm-hmm. in episode five yeah. where you go back out there. and well, There's a great chase sequence over the, yeah. the heath. It's yeah. really well, well It starts done. in the town and moves on to the heath. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. But I mean, it's that's a really nice balance between the Pertwee action mm. figure that he wanted to be and the necessities of doing mostly studio-bound stories. Yes, yeah. And I, think I mean, Invasion of the Dinosaurs Invasion of the Dinosaurs is cinematic. So with mm. so I've had Keeper of Trakum, which is very theatrical, which is you know almost completely theatrical. But Invasion of the Dinosaurs, it has. I mean, it's it's attached to a sort of cinematic genre. So this post sort of post-apocalyptic, the visual side of post-apocalyptic is a very is a very cinematic idea. Right. Shall we uh, call it a night? Okay. I've got a couple of 
big Finnish things to talk about, which okay. I quickly do. Right. Because I always like to. Because, I mean, they are official reviews for the magazine, so I figure okay. I might as well do them. Yeah. One is um, the latest... They're called short trips. They are, where it's um, one actor reads a story out. Right. Which is, well, ostensibly, it's the fourth Doctor, Sarah and Harry one. Okay. Uh, it's called, and it's a really clunky title, but actually there's nothing else it could have been called. It's called How to Win Planets and Influence People. Right. And it's read by Rufus Hound. Okay. In the first person, not as a related narrative, mm. but actually as a performance. Right. So Rufus Hound is um, a stand-up comedian, right? Mm-hmm. So it's written as an address to, um, uh, like, a conference. Right, okay. Like a business conference. Right. So it's and, motivational speaking. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. And it's about half an hour of that. Rufus Hound doing it. It is very, very funny mm-hmm. in a sort of Douglas Adams kind of a way. Right. And Rufus Hound is absolutely brilliant in yes. it. And they've put this in the advertising. So although it doesn't, you don't find out till halfway through the play, I might as well say it, he's playing the meddling monk. Okay. Right. And he's absolutely perfect for it. I think he's done that elsewhere, hasn't he? He I might think have he's, done. I think he's played, because it was first... Graham Garden for some of it. I think, no, I think stories. it went from Graham Garden to somebody else. Right. And Rufus Hound has just done it here. Right, okay. So okay. Rufus Hound may be taken over from this somebody else. Yeah, know, possibly. So I get, finish, I, I yeah, confused. and I see, I see occasional adverts in DWM. Yeah. And yeah. I remember seeing Rufus Hound in a monk's habit. That might have front, been for this. So it could have been. Yes, it could have been for something else. Yeah. Yeah. That you wow. should definitely play the monk. He's superb. Yes. Yeah. Really good at it. And this is, this is kind of a if you're going to accept Doctor Who, because it 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 sort of mocks the program itself. Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. But obviously from a place of love. Mm-hmm. Who wrote it? Um, James Goss, who wrote okay. the um, Douglas Adams books, City of Death and the right. Pirate Planet. Yeah. So you can see why it's got that big Douglas Adams influence mm-hmm. on it. Yeah, and just as everybody's, I've not read either of those two books, but everybody said he's got it perfectly right. Yeah, and so he does here as well. Okay. I mean, it's thirty-minute comedy that just seems to be a thirty-minute comedy taking a mucky Mickey out of promotional speaking, right. uh, motivational speaking, and a little bit out of the series. But actually, it throws a lot of other stuff in there as well about mm. sort of politics with a small p. Yes, and politics with a big p. Okay. And, well, no, there's an awful lot of that stuff smuggled in there, but right. just sort of smuggled in there really lightly and delivered by a comedian who's playing it straight, Yes. but doing a really, really good job of it because, you know, when you can find... Well, that's what they always say, that the very best actors sometimes turn out to be comedians mm. who actually have a facility for doing the dramatic as well yeah, yeah. because they've got the best of... Both and Rufus, Rufus Hounds has been has been doing very well in moving into, to, pro, you know, probably really he's been on the stage Who. quite a lot. So anyway, yeah. he's good in Doctor Who. Yeah. yeah, I thought he was really good in that. Next Doctor. Who knows? Well, um, the other one is the First Doctor Adventures Volume Two, which is Companion Chronicles. Okay. Which is four plays, which are narrated by somebody who's played a companion to the First Doctor. Right. So their story's being told. Yes. So um, it's, it's the continuing employment of Annika yeah, Wills, Peter Purvis. Maureen O'Brien turns Maureen up Ob- Oh, really? Film. Okay. Yeah. And, um, oh, I can't forget, I can't remember the actor's name, the one who plays Ben now. He's really good, though. Oh, okay. I don't know. Oh, God, I can't think of his name. That's terrible. He's very good. Right. And Annika Wills is very good. Yes. And Peter Purvis is Excellent. He's always good. Yeah. He, he narrated the Dalek's master plan. It was very... Yeah. Maureen O'Brien, on the other hand, I don't know what went on there, but I don't know whether it's because she couldn't find the character or whether because maybe the choice has just let that down. But the Maureen O'Brien one really didn't work for me. Right. But all the others did. But there's a thing they do in this set because these sets, obviously there have been a few of them now, these Companion Chronicles, they kind of set, well, no, they're obviously set during the spaces between the stories in the classic series. 
Yeah. <clears throat> but so they're sort of trying to find a balance between not being modern Doctor Who and old Doctor Who, but between being old Doctor Who and being slightly more conceptual Doctor Who, yeah. doing things that you can do on audio that you wouldn't have been able to do on TV or whatever. Mm. But in this one, instead of doing that, they've gone for... <clears throat> well, okay, I'm going to spoiler it. Every, I mean, it's been out for a few weeks, so I'm assuming anybody who's hearing this has probably either heard it or else, you know, they're not going to mind me spoiling it on this review because they're probably not going to. Or they've just switched off the podcast because you just said you're going to spoil it, so that's fine. Yeah, so, okay, if you want to go off and if you haven't heard it yet, the first Doctor Companion Chronicles Volume 2 and you're intending to, stop listening now because this will be the last two minutes of this podcast. But here come the spoilers. <coughs> they do a first Doctor Ben and Polly story. Right. Well, Ben and Polly stories have only ever been done and Big Finish with the second Doctor. So this mm-hmm. is the first time, I believe, they've done it with the first Doctor. Right. So they've looked at the fact that Ben and Polly join in the war game, the war machines, and their second story is The Smugglers, yes. which very obviously follows immediately on from The War Machines because it's their first trip in the TARDIS. Right. And then the next story after that is The Tenth Planet. Mm. So they said, well, the only place we can fit it is between The Smugglers and The Tenth Planet. Yeah. So what they've done is they've said, well, in that case, we're going to have to take them out of the series mm. through similar means to, say, The Celestial Toymaker or The Mind Robber yeah. and do stories that are in a sort of parallel dimension, mm. as it were, or in the same dimension, but having been wrenched out of time. Right. So in two of the four hour-long episodes, this story develops about them being taken from the 10th planet before being put back into the 10th planet. Right. One of which is an historical story which doesn't find a very interesting area of history to unfold in. Yes. So it kind of feels like a bit of a wasted opportunity. Mm. And then the other one, which tries to be something along the lines of the Celestial Toymaker and doesn't quite get away with it. Right. Which, which doesn't mean... So I it's, a, it's a big finish where a character is taken out of the 10th planet and given an adventure that takes place during the 10th planet. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I even pointed big, that out on... Big well, finish I didn't point leading the way. I didn't point it out quite that right. um, obviously, but I did point that out on Facebook a few days ago. Okay. It's high Ellery starts <clears throat> contacting the lawyers. Or the other way around. Cause, uh, yeah, okay. Right. But, well, it, but it, potentially it's a nice tie-in. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, so it's not that it doesn't work because of that reason, but that thing doesn't help it. No. And I think that's where it slightly falls apart. And then the other one, the Peter Purvis one, and this is the most bizarre thing. It does a very modern Dalek story, mm. like Dalek or Asylum of the Daleks. Yeah. Or a lot of the modern stories will do things with the Daleks that the classic series would never think to do. Because mm. in the classic series, the Daleks were that thing that you told a fairly straightforward narrative around. Yeah. And even if the Daleks were being deceptive, it was still a fairly straightforward narrative about deception. Mm. So the modern series has a couple of times gone a bit metatextual on the Daleks. Yeah. So this goes metatextual on the Daleks in mm. that sort of way, yeah. which feels odd for a start. And then you get to the end of the story and it turns out it's a prequel to The Evil of the Daleks. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. It's not by John Peel, is it? No, it's by, um... oh, I can't remember, actually. Okay. But no, it's not by John Peel. Okay. But that is just, I mean, I don't have an objection to Big Finish doing these sorts of ideas. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with those ideas. Mm. But they just feel so weirdly jarring when yeah. they're being told in the first person by the actual companions who were there in the 60s. Yes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It just... So there's a, there's a sense that the voice of the actor should ground you in that particular period. And doesn't and, because of And actually, happens. if I was listening to it, the times I listen to these these people talking generally is the linking narration and the missing e- the missing episode. Yeah, audio. right. So, yeah, it would probably jar for me as well to hear Peter Yeah, Burgess. yeah. It just... 
it was very odd. And mm-hmm. and they did a couple of odd things as well, like the bit where it becomes obvious that it's a prequel to Evil of the Daleks is in a post-credits sequence, as it were. Right. So okay. you get the music, and then you suddenly get this other scene where, yes. it, where it becomes apparent that it's a prequel right. to Evil okay. of the Daleks. And it's like... Again, that's just something that takes you out of the mm. sort of 1960s milieu. Yes. And then they do, and in the fourth story, which is the characters have been taken out of the 10th planet story, mm. they do a pre-titles thing there instead. Yes. And then they do a between the credits and the second episode thing. Right. And all of these are good ideas that kind of work. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with the ideas. But again, they just kind of, they jar mm. with where... And with whom the episodes are set. Right. So I have to say, I got to the end of this set and I had enjoyed it, Mm. but I, it just, it left me entirely confused. Right. Really. Yeah. I suppose is the best way of describing it. It was, you know, sometimes you'll watch or read something and you'll think afterwards, I'm really satisfied by that. Mm. All of these, I enjoyed them, but they left me very unsatisfied. Yes. Okay. Anyway, that's a review of that. And since we said we weren't going to do anything else on this episode, I guess we'll say on goodbye. That up, on that upbeat note. <laughs> well, I wanted to save that to last because I knew there was a good chance I was going to have to go into spoilers to talk about it. Yes, yeah. See, that was an impossible review to write for the website without spoilering any of those things. Yeah. Um, yes. I'll have to go back and have a read of that. Anyway, until next week then, when I don't know quite what we're doing, but we might be doing our um, Series 10 poll. Okay. Oh, until yes. Then. Yeah. yeah. Until then. Are we going to say it together at the same time? No, then? no, you go first. Okay, until then, I was JR. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon. <laughs>